You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Welcome back to the podcast, Petri Tika from Helsinki, Finland. Petri is an ordained minister in the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Finland. He has been pastoring local congregations, but he's on break from that now to finish work on a very exciting dissertation he's doing. It's for a Ph.D. in theology at the University of Helsinki, and the title of his dissertation is The Trinity and Universal Salvation. So, Petri, it's wonderful to welcome you back. I'm excited about the progress you're making on your dissertation, and it's good to good to talk with you. How are you doing? Thank you. Thank you. It's very nice to be here again. It's been very nice also corresponding with you, talking with, continue to talk with you between these two podcasts. And also, it's been nice to be able to help you and get some people into the podcast, I think. It's fun to broaden the conversation. And I've been excited for you to to get some more um, progress in on your dissertation. And you're hoping to finish it this year and to defend it this year. That's your goal, right? Oh, yeah. So I'm hoping to submit it for review in by the end of the spring. And if if things go okay, I I would be defending it defending it later this year, and then it would be at least uh, available online. And who knows, maybe somewhere else too. Yeah, well, I'm 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 hoping that before long it'll be it'll be more available, and I'm hoping it'll eventually be published. But we won't we won't get to all of that right this moment. I'd I'd like to just talk about some of the major points that are that you are going to be talking about in your dissertation. And maybe we can just start start with this question. How does God's love as desire for our best or God's desire for union with us cause problems for a doctrine of hell of eternal separation? Yeah, well, that's basically the question I ask, you know, how I start my whole whole thesis, which is in the end and in the beginning all about God's love. So basically, I'm engaging in the beginning of my thesis with this uh, very famous, very very good theologian called Eleanor Stump. She's a Catholic theologian, and she wrote a rather influential article in, in the year I was born, actually, 1980, 1986. She wrote an article about uh, about hell, and uh, let me just check the exact title so you know. The title of the article is uh, Dante's Hell, Aquinas' Moral Theory, and Love of God. So she's basically arguing in the in in this article that uh, God really loves everybody, but then somehow uh, God's love is not against the idea of like a kind of a traditional permanent hell. So what I'm saying there, she's basically uh, citing like both Dante and Thomas Aquinas, and the way she defines God's love is like in two different ways. First is that God uh, desires our best, so whatever we need and whatever good, like God desires our happiness and rationality and and so on and so forth, and morality. And the second aspect, which is uh, 
the most central aspect is that God desires union with us. So God actually mm-hmm. really desires union with us. And that's a, actually, that's a nice premise, I would say. And that's why I like the article, even though I don't agree with all the conclusions. But I like these premises. They're actually very traditional, very ancient. They're from Thomas Aquinas and, of course, from the Bible. Because, as we know, the Bible says that God really wants everybody to be saved and come into you know, union with him and to, and to have knowledge of the truth and so on. So, so she's basically taking this these very good premises and what i'm saying is that because what she's saying basically is that because there's this idea in this uh divine comedy by dante that god that the hell is fo- hell is founded like a permanent hell traditional hell is founded on the basis of god's love and i think that idea relates to the idea that god has given us free will so mm-hmm. because we have free will and the free will is a prerequisite for union with God. So if people choose to have not union with God, then God is also loving them or their their ability you know to to exist at least or something. But but it's all rather confusing because the thing is that let me just see what she says exactly because it's it's interesting what she says because she's basically talking in this article about this example from Dante uh and a person who's like existing has chosen like separation from God. Okay. And this is the person, this is the kind of person he's referring to, the person who's like naturally has lost their touch with reality and with, with goodness and is now only exhibiting wrath towards the other people in hell. So then uh, Stump is saying, talking about this person and saying, by granting him a place in which to exercise his wrathfulness, God allows him as much being and thus as much goodness as Filippo is capable of. God does what he can then to preserve and maximize Filippo's being and the being of each of the damned. In so doing, he treats the damned according to their nature and promotes their good. And because he is goodness itself, by maximizing the good, of the damned, he comes as close as he can to uniting them with himself. That is to say, he loves them. Which is a very admirable defense of hell, saying that God comes as close as he can to uniting them with himself. That is to say, he loves them. But that doesn't make any sense to me, because if God's love is about wanting to unite people with himself, then saying mm-hmm. that coming as close as you can to uniting with himself, I don't see that really being an act of like any straightforward love in the sense of God desiring union with that person. I mean, God might be doing the first kind of love, which was like desiring the best interest, like whatever morality and rationality. But even those don't seem to work because people are immoral and hated, hate each other. They're not happy either, not in any good sense of the word, at least. So what's basically happening is that this doesn't really work in, like you have this basic Christian idea of God wanting, you know, desire, desire, really desiring union with us. I think that's the idea that Stump does believe in, and she advocates that sort of an idea also in some of her later, you know, writings. So she Mm -hmm. does believe in that, and that's actually an important premise for people like Thomas Talbot and other f- philosophers who are Christian universalists, that premise of God really wanting 
you know, union with everybody is an important premise for universal salvation for people like Thomas Talbot. But she's trying to say something opposite, and then that doesn't really work, which makes me start to ask several questions about what this would mean. Like, if God really, really emotionally, like, if God has an emotional nature, like, not, if God isn't just some impassive creature sitting, you know, somewhere in heaven. And that leads to uh, the next uh, next question is, how does an all-loving God's emotional nature become frustrated if some do not reach union with God? Yeah, and this is where things really start to be interesting, at least for me, because a lot of the things that I've talked about before, I think people like Thomas Talbot and others have noticed some of these things, but now I really, in my thesis, I want to concentrate on who God is and how things would feel for him. Because it's really difficult. I understand people don't really talk about God's feelings that much, at least not usually uh, in everyday, you know, parlance. Because it's mm-hmm. so it's so beyond us. How can we, you know, empathize or sympathize with God? How can we put ourselves in his position? But basically, that's what I'm trying to do. And when I'm asking, like, if God really, really, really wants union with us, and then that doesn't happen. Like, how would God, in a sense, in a sense we can't even really comprehend, but we can have some sense of that. What sense, what what kind of an effect would it have on God's emotional core or feelings and so on? So what I'm basically saying is that, very simply put, if God doesn't get the union that he really wants, he would be sad. So that's put it, putting it very simply, but I think it's very effective because the problem with God becoming sad or frustrated, like if he doesn't get the union, he actually really unconditionally wants. If if, if it's unconditional desire, you know, you can of course say things that, oh God, you can make all sorts of like, you can fudge the issues different mm-hmm. ways. But if you really say that, and I think Eleanor Stump is trying to say that, then you end up with a view where God, you, you of course wouldn't want to say that, but you sort of end up with an idea or you want start to think that wouldn't God be sad in the end? And sort of in other, not in this article I was talking about, in, but in some other later works like The Atonement, she wrote a volume about, about The Atonement. Like in that, th- uh, that work, she sort of admits that God would be vulnerable to, you know, loss of union, but she doesn't really explicate, she doesn't explain what that would mean. So what mm-hmm. I, I'm saying is that God would be become kind of a tragic figure who really wants union with us, but he can't have that. And of course, most theologians traditionally wouldn't admit of an idea of God having tragedy or sadness in this sort of deep sense, at least in himself, because that would mean that basically, you know, there's this basic ancient idea in Christian theology, like there are at least two ideas which contradict this. And one of them is really easy to understand that God is, even it says, I don't remember the exact passage, but in the Bible it also says that God is blessed, like God is absolutely happy in his essence, and and happy also in his relationship with us. So what this means is that, you know, even you can see it on the cross when Jesus says that you'll be today with me in paradise. Even when Jesus is suffering, he's relationally like giving joy to the other person. So God is mm-hmm. the fountain of absolute joy, which means 
traditionally Christian theologians have said that this means that God really can't be like sad in any absolute sense in the end or in the beginning even. So what I'm saying is that this contract, this idea that God wouldn't have union with everybody in the end, you know, would make God not joyous. And the other thing which is not uh, theologians know about this concept and have talked about it a lot, but not everybody might know about it because the concept isn't exactly there in the Bible, even though you can see it there. The other concept is that God is, what you say, impassible, which means mm-hmm. God doesn't have passions or emotions in the normal, in our sense of the word, which is like we become overwhelmed by different emotions. Well, let me let yeah. me just, this leads to, I think this is a point that you were trying to make because God is both loving and can't be emotionally frustrated, i.e. he is impassable and joyous. That would seem to indicate that all should be saved. Yeah, well, it should really mean that the the idea that there would be some people who end up permanently outside of God union with God it seems incongruous it that doesn't seem to fit with the traditional ideas of who God is which are that God genuinely wants union with everybody and that God is impassable which means that he doesn't get overwhelmed by anything he doesn't get sad so so if God we want to have a how would I say it's very simplistically, but if we want to have a happy God and a loving God, we can't have an eternal hell. We can have a hell. I'm not trying to say this, deny that there could God wants to get rid of you know evil, and that might mean you know complicated and difficult processes for us because we can't put limits to God in that sense. But if we want to think about who God is, and this my thesis, I really want to focus on thinking about. Who is God and what do these things mean for himself, for his motivations, for his actions? So, you, you know, I sort of in the first section of my thesis, I end up with the this sort of like uh, set of three different propositions. And you can have two of them at the same time, but you cannot, you know, you can choose any two of them, but you can't have all three of them at the same time. So basically the first is that God is genuinely loving. And the second is that he can't be emotionally frustrated. He can't become sad. And the third is that there would be some people who nevertheless, who end up separate from him. So you can say, for instance, you can have the two first two propositions that God is, God really loves, generally loves everybody and he will be happy. But then you need to get rid of the third proposition, which is about a permanent hell. Because mm-hmm. God ca- cannot be, really want union with us and be happy in the end if there's somebody who end up separate from him. But in the end, there are other options too. This is the option I would advocate. But you could also have the proposition that God is genuinely loving, but he doesn't really have this idea of like impassibility. Like, because there are a lot of theologians, especially nowadays and since the 20th century, there are a lot of theologians who don't believe in a God who is always happy. You know, there are theologians who think that God is, so to say, passable, which means that God has passions that are emotions that are very similar to ours. So God could become sad. So you could have the idea that God becomes sad, and that there are, and that He really still wants union with everybody. Uh, so you could have that, and and then you could have the idea 
at the same time that there are some people who don't end up with union in union with him so you could have this idea because some people do advocate an idea that god can have like a kind of a tragic nature you know but mm-hmm. traditional theology doesn't admit of this and then you could also have a you know you could take the like the second and the third position but you know like the idea of impassibility and of permanent hell but just get rid of god's genuine desire for union and that's what a lot of calvinists actually kind of or the calvinists that i have read sort of uh, say that if because god does that can't get sad he can't get sad even about you know losing some people so that's what some calvinists are actually saying so i didn't come up with that but so basically you know this my my sort of proposition doesn't only relate to the discussions about universal salvation but about this you know complicated theological well they're not that complicated if you made them make them sim- more simple about you know god's happiness and stuff but that they have been been very involved and very passionate these discussions about god's impassibility and stuff you know so basically what i'm saying is that, that you can combine some of the best aspects in like this idea of a god who genuinely wants union and a god who's like uh you know because there are some people uh who say that god really needs to have so much passion in himself that he can't be impassable uh, that he can't be you know like god should become sad but what i'm saying is that you can have this sort of idea of a passionate god and you can have the idea of a non-tragic god at the same time if everybody's gonna be saved well, another another point that you're wanting to bring out in your dissertation is that the enormity of Christ's suffering can only be counterbalanced by him reaching the joy of union with those he loves. Therefore, if he loves all, all need to be saved. Yeah, so now really, really, this is, we're coming into the, basically the second section of my thesis, because my thesis is about, basically about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So, uh, because in my first, in the, like I just said, I had this idea that if we want to have a God who's both genuinely loving, genuinely wants union with everybody, and a God, and at the same time, we want God to be like absolutely joyous and, as we say, impassable, then you can't have somebody ending up separate from him. So now what I'm asking in the second section, how would this actually happen? How would God, who's joyous and genuinely loving, do what he wants to do, uh, save everybody in accordance with his nature, which is both like genuinely wants union with everybody, emotionally passionate, but also like passionate in the se- in the sense of like at the same time being completely at balance with his emotions like completely happy completely joyous completely sympathetic and empathetic at all times so and uh, this is actually these things become kind of complicated because we want when we think about how what Christ did on the cross uh, to save everybody there's a lot of ideas, especially in the 20th century theology, that Christ actually lost his impassibility or his beatitude at the cross. That even though he might be God, he became despairing and kind of unhappy at the cross. This is another point that you're getting at in your dissertation, is that 
the solidarity and sympathy of Christ in our suffering is for him not a deep sadness, but a deep joy. And so that's how you're wanting to work through that. Yeah, and I think I'd, I haven't seen that many people, at least in modern theology, say anything quite like this. So I hope people are interested in what I'm trying to say. Because the thing is that what I'm trying to say is that we, everybody knows, or everybody who's a Christian, knows that Christ said things like, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And that has made a lot of theologians think that God really felt, or Christ really felt, completely abandoned and despairing and didn't have any any of his like heavenly joy in him at all anymore at the cross. And of course, but what I'm trying to say is I'm kind of trying to say a thing that's paradoxical, but I don't think it's contradictory. What I'm trying to say is that because God loves us so much in Christ, Christ took on all of our despair and all of our losses and all of our feelings of like, why, why, am, why don't I have union with some person I love or why don't I have union with God? And Christ took all of that absolutely seriously, and that's why he went to the cross and said the things that he said. But at the same time, it's all about absolute respect and absolute love for us. It's not about Christ becoming despairing with us, in a sense, even though he's despairing, he is taking all of our despair into him. Mm-hmm. But it's all about him expressing this kind of solidarity with us. Psalm 22 is what Jesus is referring to on the cross. And if you follow that whole psalm to the end, it actually contains within that psalm ideas that God is not really abandoning and that God, it actually, that psalm ends quite triumphantly. Yeah, well, that's what I'm also thinking about because the thing is that the way I interpret that what's happening is that because Jesus says that those words right after the high priests and the other officials have been mocking him and saying, if God really loves you, then you can come down from the cross and stuff. So the way I interpret that is that Jesus is sort of saying that on behalf of the people of Israel who don't realize the state that they're in, that they are actually killing people, actually mocking a human being and don't understand what the, what's going on. And Jesus is kind of saying that this is what's going on, you know, on their stead and taking the despair that they don't even understand and giving it words. And of course, ultimately, I mean, Christ wouldn't be using a psalm, I think, either, if he didn't know that quoting the beginning of a beginning part of a psalm refers to the whole thing. I think that's even a traditional thing or might have been that if you quote the beginning like for instance like the first book of genesis in hebrew it's called bereshit which means in the beginning so if you Mm -hmm. quote the first very first line of a book it refers to the whole thing so of course it includes the despair uh, but it includes also the you know the pathway towards joy and even all nations and even the kings worshiping god you know and i think that the whole psalm is in the end about universal salvation yeah that that psalm is uh, so interesting because uh, it starts out on such a note of despair and then it ends up with this incredible triumph yeah well that's really the thing because i think you know 
what really motivates me to think about God's joy on the cross is the idea, you know, that I get the sense that I get personally when I think about God's grace and how it's completely unlimited. Because the world always limits grace, you know. It always says that you're not good enough or you did something and that's why you need to be cancelled or something. You know, and we all, I think the Bible indicates at least that we all have faults which we would be absolutely ashamed of. So then people still keep on shaming each other. But what Grace says is that, you know, Christ was of course shamed completely on the cross. But still, what I'm trying to say based on my own experience of like grace and shame and everything is that grace is so absolute and so profound and so complete in God that there's no shame left. Actually, this is what Eleanor Stump is saying, I think, trying to stay in her book about atonement, that the union with God, which is accomplished on the cross, you know, is so powerful and so joyous and so perfect that it takes away all sense of shame. So what I'm trying to say here is that, you know, I'm trying to sort of say similar things to Eleanor Stump, but going even further, which is trying to say that Christ, if we have a sense, if anybody has a sense of that absolute, unlimited grace and how it's all about joy, and there'd be no limit anymore about what I can do and what I can be. And I don't have to be afraid of sin, and I don't have to submit to sin either, because that's what the world offers you. That you can just be, live in the joy of the Trinity. I think that's, if that's the sense of grace we get from God, and if Christ exhibited that grace on the cross, then there should be some kind of joy in the cross. And this is, of course, again, in 20th century theology, there's been a lot of debate about this. And a lot of people think that this really can't be true, because otherwise Christ wouldn't be taking the horrendous suffering of the world and the Holocaust and so on and so forth seriously but then in my thesis i also shortly referred to an actual holocaust survivor there was this person called victor frankl oh yeah man search for meaning yeah yeah he made a sort of form of psychotherapy or psychoanalysis or whatever called logotherapy and his idea is that you can find meaning in the most meaningless situation if you give it meaning, if you give it meaning through serving your neighbor or something like, he's trying to say something like that. He's, of course, he's not talking about joy necessarily, but he's also actually says something like, if you don't look for joy directly and you just serve your neighbor, you will find joy. It will be a side effect, but not a direct, if you just look for joy directly, then you won't find it. So, but basically what I'm saying that on the cross, because Christ really was only trying to serve the neighbor, there was some sense of joy, which is not about, you know, him being joyous in himself, locked in himself, but all about transmitting joy to us. Because, you know, the idea of the Trinity and of who God is with the Father, I mean, who Jesus is with the Father, is all about, how, you know, I love you, and, and a rela- sort of a relationship of absolute joy. And that's what Christ is doing. Also, when he's, as I was saying earlier, when he encounters the the other thief at the cross and he says that today you shall be with me in paradise that's christ is, has that fullness of kind of some kind of like helpful loving joy in him and that's what he gives 
like if you think about a situation where a person is ab- you know shamed and striped and and strip stripped of his clothes and put naked on the cross and he still says things like father forgive them for they know what not what they are doing and he says all of these different words he even helps his mother and 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 John to you know for his mother to have a future after him and he does all of these things like if you were in that situation you would be i at least i cannot imagine without god's help being anything else but catatonic you know like completely shut out of love in that situation but somehow amidst that despair he has this thing which we call beatitude or impassibility you know which is not getting overwhelmed in the sense of losing that idea of love well another question that you want to deal with in your dissertation is is this one is universalism an abstract solution that ignores present concerns okay and now we you know come to the third section of my thesis then and this is a more this is gradually more and more about the holy the holy spirit of god who is according to traditional like theology is considered the love of God, like the love between the Father and the Son, as St. Augustine said. So, but anyway, what I'm saying, what I'm first asking in this in this section, I'm actually talking about a couple of different Lutheran theologians, and their names are Robert Jensen and Gerhard Fordy. And both of them say sort of similar things, that if you talk too much, too directly about universal salvation, that everybody's going to be saved or something, then you ignore like actually proclaiming and giving, like transmitting personally forgiveness to other people that you encounter right now. Because like, for instance, Gerard Forty, he made even a book called Theologies for Proclamation. So what he's saying is that, uh, that it's so important that you right now preach the gospel to concrete people, that if you start to talk that everybody's just going to be saved, anywho, then you're going to forget and not pay attention to the importance of like, that we are right now living in a state where we forget about God's grace, and that's why we need to proclaim God's grace here and now. And I actually, I basically agree with this. I'm a Lutheran theologian myself, so I agree that there's a specific absolute centrality and importance to proclaiming forgiveness and grace to specific people in the here and now. But what I'm then saying here is that this universalism can be understood in this very personal sense of proclamation of forgiveness. Because you know, universe, because the basically Gerhard Fordy and Robert Jensen, as they are to- both talking about universalism in the sense of like, especially Gerhard Fordy is talking about universalism in the sense of that everybody's just going to be somehow saved. You know, maybe in this sort of idea that even if you don't believe in Jesus concretely, then you might be saved. I don't know, but what I'm saying is that if you have this idea of the importance of like proclaiming forgiveness to a person and you do that like i'm sort of talking even though i'm talking academically in my thesis but this is based on my own experience in the sense that when i've received that absolute assurance that you are loved god loves you god loves me god loves petri samuel which you get through proclamation you get it through your family in the lutheran church you get it the idea is that you get it through baptism that you are personally loved you're personally baptized uh into god into the trinity all of those actually mean that oh i am this i am just a normal person i am 
but I am absolutely loved by God. That whatever happens, I am loved by God. You know, whatever happens, all of these things, this personal sense of proclamation and receiving forgiveness, it just is. It's such an absolute assurance for me personally that you start to think like you cannot really think that if I have, despite all of the things that prevent me from believing in God's grace, I have still believed in God's grace. And if I take that for the miracle that it is, then I don't, and the wonderful miracle that it is, then I shouldn't have any problem in believing that that's going to happen to other people as well. And I shouldn't put any limitations on that, because then I put limitations on God's proclamation to me as well. Well, one of the things that I think you're also wanting to talk about in your in your uh, thesis has to do with the role of the Holy Spirit. For Robert Jensen, the Spirit is also absolutely victorious and is who God is. The salvation of all is also all about the Spirit. Yeah, so what I'm basically, this relates to what I was just saying in the sense that for both Gerhard Forty and for this Robert Jensen too, proclamation and receiving you know forgiveness and believing in forgiveness is all about what the holy spirit is doing right now as you know the power of god's love so the spirit is full of this power which is all about like you are forgiven god loves god loves you god loves you david now i'm being very lutheran you yes. are just for <laughs> jesus sake <laughs> it's you david you have been baptized you, you shouldn't forget that. i know you have easily do but now is not the time <laughs> anyway, that's the sort of thinking we have in Lutheranism. And, and it's like about absolute personal assurance that's objectively given for you. And it's all about, I would say it's all about relationships. And of course, the Holy Spirit is, a, is basically in traditional Christian theology, it's, it's basically the relationship between the Father and the Son or the fullness of their relationship, the love of their relationship. So Robert Jensen is, agrees with this kind of notion that the Holy Spirit is the love of God and the gift of God for us in proclamation. And but Robert Jensen actually think that God that he doesn't specify exactly what this means, but he says that the spirit is going to be absolutely victorious in the end and he's the triumph and the goal of the triumphal goal of all of God's ways. So if there's going to be something marvelous that happens in the end, it's all about who the Holy Spirit is. He doesn't specify quite that it's the universal salvation, even though Robert Jensen also says that the real real goal of all of God's ways is uh, is the every the, the union of humanity with God. But he doesn't connect these two ideas of the Holy Spirit and the sort of hopeful universalism or whatever he's supposed to be saying. It's kind of unclear. But what I'm saying is that because Robert Jensen is saying that the Spirit is absolutely victorious and he's victorious in this sense of like bringing this assurance from the future and assurance of forgiveness in the here and now, that there's not going to be any limits to the forgiveness. That's the idea Robert Jensen gives for the Spirit. There's not going to be, if you're forgiven right now, if you're proclaimed righteous in the here and now, there's not going to be something in the future that's going to prevent that. And that's the idea of who the Holy Spirit is. So that's very all very good and very fine. But what I'm saying is that if this is so, and if if the Spirit is going to be the victorious, victoriousness, basically, of present-day proclamation, then there shouldn't be any sort of hindrance to proclamation being victorious and everybody being saved through proclamation and the sacraments. Well, one of the things that um, 
has been a challenge for me in trying to interact with Lutheran theology is that Lutheran theology is so much about mystery that it's sometimes easy to kind of get turned around in all of it. <laughs> but I think that, I mean, what you're saying is that one should replace the mystery of a hidden God who might damn with the mystery of a God who refuses to be known as anything but salvific in the spirit. Oh, yeah. So this relates to the idea that Lutheran theologians have even noticed that there's two kinds of hiddenness in God, and people have various opinions about these things, obviously. But the fir- the the kind of hiddenness uh, which is often talked about is, uh, well, I would say the primary meaning of hiddenness anyway for Lutherans is that God refuses to be known uh, anywhere else but in Jesus Christ, basically, in the gospel, in proclamation and stuff like that, in the positive things. But then there's also a negative kind of hiddenness, which is this idea that we cannot control God and perhaps somebody might not be saved in the end because of that or whatever. But it's basically, even though that that might be what people are trying to say, but it basically implies that there's something that might work against the gospel proclamation. That's what I'm trying to say here, is that you shouldn't have that kind of a hiddenness that at least you can say that God hides himself from anything else but the proclamation of forgiveness of Jesus Christ. But then you shouldn't say, okay, I agree with that. I agree with that idea. But I don't agree with the idea that that might mean that God might damn some somebody because that's against the proclamation of absolute and unconditional forgiveness. So what I'm saying is that God might hide himself and make people confused even or might be, put people in some kind of an experience of hell, which they might even feel that's eternal or whatever. We don't know exactly. God can do absolutely anything he wants to do to make bring the point of absolute universal salvation and hope to the heart of a person. God can God is free. We don't know, you know, even if we don't even have the slightest slightest inkling of all the things that God's going to do, you know. I and I agree I agree with that idea, but I don't agree with the idea that that might mean that God suddenly reveals a face, the face of war as we might say, you know, mm-hmm. like a face of like absolute abandonment of us, you know, and not giving his love a place in us and in our souls in the end. One of the things that's confusing to me about Lutheran theology is it seems to have the idea that God saves by grace alone and that God gives grace to all, but then this idea that some will be lost and you know that gets as i understand it that's the that's this mystery of the theologians and will you be getting in trouble i guess if you say well that part where some might not be saved that that introduces a bad mystery into the theology so how how do you work with that how do you work with that tension well the thing is that even this Idea, you know, there's the, you, this idea, which is the mystery of the theologians, that God loves everybody and He has the power to save everybody, but somebody might not be saved in the end. I think, you know, it's trying to preserve, one way or another, the freedom of God 
and the power of God. You know, I, you know the thing is that for me, per, what I can say that for me personally, this idea, even though it, somebody might have some good idea behind it, but in practice for me, it was extremely detrimental for my spiritual well-being. Because it put a doubt, if you even put a slightest amount of doubt into who God is in his love, you're just going to go crazy. It's it's not acceptable for me personally anymore. I'm I'm not going to I'm not going to sort of diminish that out of a fear of something or somebody saying anything because for me it was absolutely detrimental for my spiritual development and well-being. And every time I thought about the idea that there might just be despite of everything the idea that that somebody might be lost even though God really wants to save them. And God has the power to save them. It just made me like, how is this possible? This is terrible. I cannot stand this. It's like we're talking about actual people. This was my, this was how I felt for ten years from when I was sixteen, until I was twenty-six, until I had a revelation of the cross and the Trinity, which is basically what my thesis is now all about, in a roundabout sense. But basically, it was so detrimental to me. This, this even the slightest doubt. The slightest, the slightest mystery, so to say, about God's love, that I'm not going to have any of it. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely. I, I think that's the epit. Can I just be frank? I think that's the epitome. Even though people don't mean it like that, but I almost, I basically feel that it's the epitome of evil, because you, you can. It's almost more honest to say that God is, you know, wrathful and angry than to say that oh, God loves everybody. Oh, and God has the power to save everybody. But then. Oh, everybody might not be, and if everybody might not be said, I know well-meaning people say that, but for some well-meaning people like myself, that was so harmful for me. I don't even want to talk about how harmful for it, it was for me, and I'm not the only person who feels like that. And this is coming from a Lutheran, uh, you know, uh, background, and I know people who have much more straightforward things like, like you're going to go to hell, sort of preaching. That does that didn't happen in my environment Mm -hmm. so anyway this is why i i don't i'm not really i don't want to care about what anybody is going to say about it because i want to believe in the mystery of god but i want it to be about who the holy spirit is and what he does and how is the mystery that we even believe in him and his absolute joy and his absolute grace The, the mystery is in the grace like your book basically says i think you know it's all about grace and the miracle of grace. And how is it possible that pe- we people who are so messed up and and become so confused and do things which aren't according to our best interest, God just doesn't stop loving us at any single moment and absolutely pours out total grace, total joy, total sympathy in Jesus Christ. It's You know, when you're telling your story, it, building from age 16 to 26 and being a very sounds like to me very sincere about your your faith and i think your family was very involved in the life of the church uh-huh. and so it's you know so it seems like you had this old building and building and building and you said you had a moment of revelation uh about the cross and the trinity when you were 26 can you just tell us a little bit about that what that was like for you yeah, well, basically, my problem was that was this, 
you know, this mystery of the theologians. That was my problem. The, the idea that God loves everybody and has the power to save everybody, but then somebody suddenly, illogically, because of God's mysterious nature, might not be saved because God, we have to let God be free or, or we have to be, you know, for me it was also about, basically about, because I was afraid of my own sinfulness and my imperfections, and I thought that if I want to put a limit to that, I have to think that there's at least a possibility of hell for somebody I didn't really want to think it was really about me, you know, because who would want to think like that? So it's kind of a weird thinking. You think that there's evil and there has to be a limit to it, and it ha somehow has to mean, you know, hell of some kind. Or, I mean, an eternal hell, at least as a possibility. I didn't realize at that point that you should only look at the cross and the cross is the limit. But that's basically where I was coming to, because... Then through various circumstances and, you know, I realized the importance, first of all, of like that God, if we want to go through a tragedy of any kind of like losing a relationship or losing a friend or a person dying or or anything like that, we have to believe personally that God is going to take care of that person and he's going to give faith to that person and he's going to take care of everything for that person. If we have a person who we've really been friends with or loved with, if there's anything that troubles that relationship, it becomes very important to realize and to believe in the providence of God. And most of us, I think, you know, whether we as Christians, we do believe like that on a very visceral, basic level. God's going to take care of that person. And sometimes it might be less conscious, sometimes it might be more conscious. But if we are Christians, we do trust that God's going to take care of our, or hopefully we can trust that God's going to take care of the people close to us at least. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like that, that what's coming up is the theme of relationship. And your thesis has has a lot to do with how the nature of God's love is about relationship and mutuality since God is Trinity. That means God can't love um, only unilaterally. A response is to be expected, a free one. And then we are somehow to reflect this Trinitarian mutuality. So there's something deep about relationship that's involved in all of this. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, you, that you brought that up, because that relates to what I was actually coming to, because with the vision I had in 2012, which is, was about the Trinity and the relationships that the Trinity has on the cross, I would say, between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because I was troubled about because if God's going to take care of everybody and even give, you know, because I believe that God, I was starting to believe that God takes care of people who have been close to us at least. But then if you read that somebody might not be saved, that doesn't, doesn't make any sense anymore. Because if God takes people who are close to me, why wouldn't he take care of any everybody? So then my only issue was like, how is everybody, everybody going to have faith then? Because I, you need faith. You need that relationship with God. You need that mutuality. That in the Trinity in the end. And then I really, I kind of had this sort of uh, experience or vision or however you would call it of the cross and what happened at the, at the cross between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So basically the idea was that, uh, this, you know, the Father's own Son died as a human being. And if the Father really cares about what Christ was doing, which was he was dying for everybody who had lost faith and had you know, being engulfed by evil and whatever, 
if the father respects that sacrifice, if the father really loves his son, he wouldn't let his son die for anything less than he what he died for, which is for everybody, for him to achieve what he did. So God, the father, really loves that, loves not only his son, but what his son did at the cross. And that's his respect towards his son's sacrifice. And that's the third person on the that's why the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who we traditionally has been called the like the giver of faith, is gonna give faith to everybody. And that's basically well, my vision. And that's what I started to think about of in my thesis. Well I think that what I'm observing as I've been doing this podcast and talking to people around the world is that there is just a lot of energy that is building to finally claim what is best in the Christian heritage, in the Christian tradition. And in your situation, that's claiming what's best about the Lutheran vision. And in, and in the larger Christian world, there's just people that are looking over the history of the whole tradition now from this vantage point, and that we, we are wanting to claim what we see as the best in the tradition, and we think we have enough perspective now to look at uh, times when people talked about the mystery of God in a dark way, or they talked about the judgment of God in ways that seem to contradict the love and the mercy of God. And what we're, we're trying to say is, okay, we can respect why people might have come to those points of views, but it's time for, for those views to go into the background and the best, the best to really come into the into the foreground, and let that, and let let that take us into the future. So it's just interesting to me. I see this happening in examples in Lutheran theology and in all kinds of different places. So, you know, you're not you're not alone in the people in the world that are thinking this way. Oh yeah, and that's the. Because, well, that's what I want at least because the the. The thing for me about this hope or about this reality of salvation or for all and an assuredness to it, you know, it's not some people, you know, I'm sometimes, you know, people think, people don't always understand that even though I'm writing an academic thing, it's it's not about theory for me. It's It's really about the practice and, you know, wanting people to see because I have, you know, experienced this idea of God absolutely loving me and redeeming me, that it's all about sharing it. That it can't be, it relates to this idea of mutuality, you know, like, if if I have this idea, you know, maybe that this is what other people are experiencing too about universal salvation, that it's it's just so impossible to let it stay inside you, because Ultimately, it's all about relationships, as we were talking. Because in the mm -hmm. Trinity, it's about the Father loving the Son in the Holy Spirit. And for us, it's the, the fact that we have experienced that God is taking care of me and absolutely everybody, because he is taking care of me. So you just really, really, really you almost feel... Kind of sometimes, of course, this is not what you want, would want to feel, but you almost kind of feel sometimes desperate to have it burst out. And I think that's what a lot of people are feeling. But of course, you've got mm -hmm. to be patient 
and you've got to think about it carefully. That's what I've been at least trying to do in my thesis. And, you know, it's about then sharing the idea, really, which I would say is it's really more and more important even right now. Because what I see happening in the world with all this, you know, even one can just frankly say even what's happening right now in the war between from the attack that's happening from Russia to Ukraine and stuff. I see that really being a reflection of darker currents in our, you know, Christendom, which aren't only, you, you can say you can demonize Putin all you want, but we have all of that, you know, in all of our way of life, we've been become more and more about us versus them attitudes. And I am a liberal, you're a conservative, I'm this, you're that. And it's stopped being, Christianity has stopped being about Christ and started to be about different ideologies that you have instead of having a relationship with Christ. Because I think a lot of people, you know, Robin Perry has also talked about this, that often it's like this personal evangelical experience of a relationship with Christ that really make you think about the importance of a relationship with Christ and really makes you want and hope that it's for everybody. And then it's the Holy Spirit who can reveal to you that he's going to do it, that we don't need to become despairing about it. We can just follow whatever the Holy Spirit wants us to do. And I'm really encouraged like uh, about what you were saying, that a lot of people are thinking more and more about how to make this a reali- realize that we can let go of the dark aspects because we don't need to protect the, the the thing is we don't need to protect the gospel the gospel can protect itself there's no other attack we don't need to attack obviously other countries we just need to attack with the gospel with the non with the non-violent means of the gospel without any compulsion because god you know, people also say that God respects our freedom so much that people can choose separation from him. Fine, that's all fine. But what about if God respects our freedom more than anybody else ever could? God respects your freedom, my freedom, the freedom of people in Ukraine and Russia and America and Finland. God really absolutely, impassibly, perfectly, joyously respects the freedom of everybody. Why wouldn't that be a reason for universal salvation and not against it? Because God respects you more, you the listener. I just want to say this to you personally. God respects you and your freedom more than you do, you can even realize, and more than you can even do yourself without him, and more can more than any of your your friends or your relatives. They can't realize all the freedom and all the love that you need. And if you have any respect for your own freedom. I believe that becomes because God absolutely gives you all the freedom that you need and you want. And this is why, because of the personal respect I feel that God has for me, and for everybody for that matter, but because I feel it for me that God calls me through his respect and really ties me perfectly to himself through his respect for my freedom, that's why I don't, the, the whole free will argument, which is always the basic argument against universal salvation, I think it really skews the idea of freedom in my mind. Well, that was one of the things that impresses me about uh, Origen's theology, was that he was so 
emphatic that free will be respected, that there was no going to be no rushing of this process. God was not going to push us into anything, but also God was not going to lose and God was not going to fail. So the process was going to take as long as it would as long as it would possibly take, and it might take us down some horribly dark roads individually and as a human family, but that God was willing to walk that dark road with us and even to submit to the greatest darkness that we could come up with. And by submitting to that in love, begin to turn it around and make a victory out of the whole out of the whole thing. And sometimes I wish that God wouldn't do it that way. I wish that God would wave a magic wand and make it all go away because of all the pain and the suffering. But I think what, what you're talking about is if, if God can experience joy in the midst of all of it, then maybe I can too. And maybe, maybe that's a way that we can go through life and we can still feel with the people that are suffering and we can still feel our own suffering but not in a way that defeats us or in a way that conquers some kind of conquers our joy essentially uh, yeah that's very important and that's what i've been feeling lately especially with because in finland we are quite close to the situation in ukraine to be honest you know and it's really come home that there's darkness in the world of course as christians we know that anyway but you realize that it's concretely there and the only way you know because people try to demonize other nations or leaders or whatever that I don't see that as a people might try that as a coping mechanism, but that's not a long that's not a sustainable way forward, and, and I, nor is it becoming panic panicked about situations like this. And you don't even have to talk about war; it can be about anything else, anything bad. But it just becomes so concrete in this kind of a situation. But what I'm saying is that in this this it makes me quote unquote even more desperate. But I wanted to be in a good way to really uh, bring home the idea of God being impassable and joyous and at the same time loving at the cross. Because if we follow that example, as you were saying, you know, what that means is that we can and we must feel everything that's going on as, lo- as, as far as it's required of us, you know. But at the same time, we don't have to feel that, oh, I'm, this is terrible and it's horrible because our feelings are there. Our feelings of even sadness and despair are there to really enable us to see the other person and to help the other person, not to put them, you know, not to demonize somebody. But they enable us, you know, through Christ's, you know, victorious suffering to be empathetic to other people and to, you know, because the thing is that this all relates to universal salvation because if you think that everything's going to end up poorly and badly somehow because of people's choices or whatever, then you do lose that sense of like, because you cannot really say anymore that there's going to be an end limit to all of this. Because I think the problem with the modern day thinking about, the reason why people have been so shocked about what's happening in the world, you know, whether it's political stuff in the in whatever country or now military stuff and whatever. Of course, that's been happening all over the world anyway. But what the reason why people are continuously so shocked is that they think that 
oh, we have been so de- we've been developing as a human species and the species and there's this all this development and this is medieval and whatever. But then you lose your sense of hope because you think that things are about some sort of inevitable sort of like impersonal processes instead of a relationship with God and relationship with other people. So I really just hope and pray that whatever happens, that God will himself and Christ will himself reveal himself to us so that we see the other person right now, not as some sort of a thing that will lead to a process later on, you know, of whatever kind, you know, because that just makes us ignore the horrible things that are happening right now. But we don't have to ignore them. We can just encounter the neighbor and ourselves with that kind of, I would say, the impassable joy of Christ, which is all about seeing yourself and seeing other people with the eyes of God, which is absolute grace and absolute love. To me, there's this is very practical because of the way that it, it, it affects our world, and I'm very pleased that you're continuing to work on your um, on your dissertation, and I hope to check back in with you as it gets um, gets further along, and hopefully the n- next time that we check back in with each other, the world will be a little brighter place. Oh, yeah. Well, the, anyway, as we were saying, that's why I feel that presenting this message of hope is all the more practical and all the more important. I couldn't agree with you more. All right, well, God bless you, and we'll be checking back in with you later. Yeah, thank you. Thank you ever so much, and God bless you too. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.